right. <clears throat> hey, can you just turn to someone next to you and say, I'm so happy to see you. Can you do that? Say, you look beautiful today. Uh, you lost an hour of sleep, but uh, you look lovely, fabulous today. I want to ask you a question this morning. Um, if you had one week left to live, what would you do? Okay, if you had one week left to live, one week, uh, what would you do? <laughs> Eat, pray, love. Very good. Three answers that came out. Awesome. You know, the book, right? Um, as I often do, I ask some of our church people, hey, what would you do? If you had a week left to live, uh, I asked my three children, what would they do if they had a week left to live? And uh, different answers came in. Um, in kind of family feud style, number one answer was I would spend time with my loved ones. Like a lot of people, majority of people said at least something to that effect. I'd spend time with people that I love, people who had invested in me, role models, my disciples, family members, friends. Uh, close behind that was I would, um, I would reconcile with people that I jacked up, got jacked up relationships with, people who'd hurt me, people that I'd hurt. People just have got loose ends and I don't want to enter into eternity like that. So I would uh, confess, I would forgive, all of that stuff. Um, number three was uh, I would tell everyone that doesn't know Jesus about Jesus. I would tell them because I had one shot, right? You got to lose yourself in the music. No, no, no. <laughs> if you got one shot, then you got to really, yeah, this is it. I want to tell people about Jesus. Here's some other things. This is, there are some other rather interesting things and maybe some not some interesting things, but um, this is what one guy said. I'd spend the first day planning the week out with friends and family while eating good Korean food all day. He would plan out his week. That's crazy. And then he said, maybe think of that Abraham Lincoln quote where he said if he had six hours to chop down a tree, he'd spend the first four sharpening his axe. Interesting. Wise. <laughs> uh, I would want all my meals to be awesome that week. That's what somebody said. Yeah. I would prepare my will. Right. Smart also. Um, someone said, I would have fun, play a sport, pray, snuggle with mommy and daddy. Okay, someone said that. Uh, someone else said, I would go see the northern lights. Ooh, cool. Uh, someone said, I would try and find my husband a replacement for me. That's sweet, right? Then she said, he said that was too sad, LOL. So I changed it to get him puppies. <laughs> and... I would make a time capsule. Right, pretty cool. Uh, I would read lots of books, visit Universal Studios, eat chocolate, and snuggle with mommy and daddy, somebody said. Someone else said, I would dress up like a princess, and I would pray. <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> that was Olive. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, someone else said, I would keep it a secret, gather my family together, cook a massive meal for them, I would sit and listen to them bicker at each other, laugh with them, listen to my dad's crazy old stories. I would then leave and go to the spot on the beach that I've gone to ever since I was a little kid. This spot was my quiet place. Whenever I questioned anything in life, had problems, angry, going there would remind me how small my problems were. What would you do if you had a week left to live? Because what you do if you have a week left to live, you know that the... The, the, the clock is ticking on your life. You know you've got a week left to live. What you do in that week reveals a lot about what you value. It reveals a lot about your mission, about the things that are important, about your desires. What we want to do today, beginning today for the next uh, few weeks, is we're going to go through a look at the last week of Jesus' life. 
It's the first Sunday of Lent today for the next five weeks. Next week, you can read all about it in the insert of your bulletin. Next week, um, guest speaker, he's going to kill it. He's going to be amazing, going to make you uh, just feel the heart of God in a, in a powerful way. When we come back, we'll go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and look at what each of these days mean and why Jesus chose to do the things that he did because it's crucial to understanding his mission, his life. If you've never heard about Jesus or you just pop in today, I don't usually go to church. It's going to be a great series for you to understand and see what Jesus values and what his heart beats for. But the last week of Jesus' life comes anywhere between maybe like 30 to 33 years after A.D., Anno Dominion, the year of our Lord. It's about 2,000 years ago or so. And it comes at this like crazy pivotal point in the history of the Jewish, uh, of the Jewish people. The Jews for, uh, from all time had been considered the people of God. And for this particular time in which they're living, they're living under the Roman oppression. Okay? So they're enslaved to the Roman Empire. So they've got relative you know, freedom to do some of the things that they can do, but they're also paying a lot of taxes. They have to bow the knee to Caesar. They had to say Caesar is king, all of these different things. They're living in that kind of a period, and the Roman occupation and slavery of the Jewish people had reached this point where they're like fed up with it. Like, I can't take this anymore. I'm ready to break free, but they needed a leader to do that. And so for all their days, they've been longing for a king. They had this great king about 1,000 years before Christ named David. And since then, it's been all downhill since that time. There would be kings who rise and brought about revival, and then they'd fall again. They'd rise and they'd fall. And they've been longing for a king. And the prophecies had said that a king was going to come that was going to set them free from oppression. And so they're in this point in time where they're longing for this like they've never longed for it before. And there's this 30-year-old Jewish man, this Jewish rabbi who had been teaching, and there's speculation that this guy could be the one. Because he'd been doing things that nobody else had done. Whenever he would teach, like people would be mesmerized. He would teach with such authority that people wouldn't be falling asleep. They wouldn't be looking at their iPhones. They wouldn't be pretending like they're writing on their church bulletins, drawing pictures. They wouldn't do any of that stuff. They'd be captivated and fixated upon the teachings of this 30-year-old Jewish rabbi. Not only that, dead people would stand in the presence of this Jesus, and they'd be brought to life. That had never happened before. People who were blind were leaving, seeing people coming on crutches would leave and, and they'd be running and jumping and, and they're like, could this be the guy? Like 10,000 people on a countryside starving for food because they've been listening to the teaching authority of this man for days and he, he, he feeds all of these people with a picnic lunch on the seaside, on the shore, on the, on, the, on the plains of Galilee and they're wondering, could this be the guy. And so this messianic hope for a king is reaching its fever pitch. And so when Jesus is around, people are coming, especially towards this last week of his life. It's like, I don't know if you guys know Zion Williamson. So wherever Zion goes, crowds are following. They're like, dude, this is the man. This is it. You don't know who that, a lot of you don't seem to know who that is. It's the Jonas Brothers, right? Jonas Brothers are coming in town. They're like, yeah, this is it. This frenzy, this Fever pitch of longing. On one hand, we hate Rome. We need to be delivered from them. On this other hand, they've got this, this, this person who could be the deliverer. He could be the Messiah. The first day of the week, Sunday rolls around. They call this Palm Sunday, the Passover, which means there's thousands of Jewish people coming from all over the diaspora, spread, spread out over uh, the land, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so there's thousands of people, way more than there have ever been at any point throughout the year longing for their king. And the prophecy of Zechariah said, your king will come riding into Jerusalem on a colt that had never been ridden before. 
And in fulfillment of prophecy, on the first day of the week, on Sunday, Jesus comes riding in to Jerusalem on a colt. And so the people of God are like, this is it. He is our king. Here's the Messiah. Here's our deliverer. He's going to set all things right. He's going to kick the butts of the Romans, and we're going to ascend to power. And there's this longing and there's hope and this expectation of amazing things that are going to happen. And so as Jesus rides on that donkey into Jerusalem, they wave their palm branches saying, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna to the son of David. And so for the first time, they begin to say, here is our king, right? which flies in the face of what every citizen, every person of Rome would do. You're, you're, if you're a Roman citizen, if you're a person of Rome, you say Caesar is king. For the first time, they're saying somebody else is king because all of their hope, all of their eggs are in this Jesus basket here. And so that day comes, and they're like, man, this is it. This is going to be the week. And Jesus has crossed the Rubicon. The lines have been drawn in the sand. There's only one of two ways that this week is going to end. Either the week is going to end with Jesus overthrowing Rome, and the people of God are going to rise to ascendance, and their kingdom will be established, or because of all of this frenzy around Jesus, the Romans and the religious leaders are going to have to kill him. Right? There's only two options here. Either Jesus is going to reign over that earthly kingdom of Rome, or Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross. Lines have been drawn in the sand. He comes in on Sunday. Everybody goes to sleep. And on Monday, they're longing. What is Jesus going to do? Where is he going to go? How is he going to overtake the people of Rome? Mark chapter 11. We're going to look at Monday this morning. Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 15 through 19. You, you, you hear this sense of longing, this anticipation, this frenzy of, of, of activity and of expectation as Jesus comes. Uh, Monday morning he comes. Uh, he uh, curses a fig tree, right? it's the first part of this section, and then in Mark chapter 11, verse 15, it says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you made it a den of robbers. Chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. This is God's word, and this is Monday. What's happening here? They're longing to see, what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to begin this week of overthrowing the Roman Empire? Where is he going to go? He doesn't go to Caesar's palace. Now, you might think, if he's going to overthrow the establishment, you've got to go straight for the jugular. You've got to go to the king. He doesn't go to Caesar. He doesn't even go to Pontius Pilate, the little governor over their region of Judea. He doesn't even go there. He doesn't go to the Roman army. Where does he go? He goes to the heart and soul of the nation. He goes to the temple. What is he saying here? He's saying, check this out. Your problem, Jewish people, your problem, people of God, your problem as God's people is not what you think. You think your problem is your relationship with Rome. No, 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 no. Your problem is your relationship with God. You think that the problem is the occupation of Rome. Your greater problem is the corruption of your worship. As we begin this Lenten season, my brothers and sisters, my friends, 
my people. May we allow the Lord God to examine our hearts as we come into this place. Because if Jesus came to America today, this is what he's saying. The problem is not in the White House. The problem is not in the Senate. The problem is not in Russia. The problem is here in the church. And judgment begins at the house of God. What does he mean? Two thoughts that I want to bring out. And I I just want to ask you to examine your hearts as you hear the word of God. Two thoughts. First thing. First thing. Why was Jesus so angry? One of the few times we see Jesus getting this flipping angry that he flips over these tables. Jesus is hopping mad here. What is he so angry about? About the religious establishment, about people just like you and me. First thing, they looked religious, but they ignored the word of God. Hey, we look pretty religious here. We do. Because we came to worship God. Hey, it's... You came an hour earlier than you usually do, okay? There's some, it's 11.14 right now, which means it used to be 10.14. At about 11.30, some people might be rolling in late thinking that it's actually 10.30, and we're going to look at them and say, ha, those people, they couldn't get up early, or they didn't know. For whatever reason, they're coming in late. But we here, we're on time, yeah. And some of you were even earlier than on time, which means you're really on time, right? We are the religious people, but the question is, What do you do with the word of God? In order to understand that, I want to ask uh, two questions, very important, okay, very important questions. First question is this, why was Jesus so angry? What's the big deal about selling stuff in the temple? What's the big deal about having a bake sale in the cafe? What's the big deal about selling somebody's artwork in the atrium? What's the big deal about selling something in the house of God? The first question. Second question is, when did this actually take place? Because in John's gospel, it happens in John chapter 2, which, as you know, is very early in the gospel of John. It's right after Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. The very next thing he does on the Passover is he cleans a temple out. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it says it happens in the final week of Jesus on the first day, on Monday, rather, on Monday of the last week. So when did this happen? Because if I don't reconcile these things, then the question is going to be, can I really trust the Bible? It's just another one of the biblical contradictions, isn't it? So two questions that we need to ask. Why was Jesus so mad about a little buying and selling in the temple courts in the house of God? In order to understand that, you've got to understand the geography, the layout of the temple. Okay, we can get a little bit technical here so that you can be Jewish scholars by the time we leave. If you can imagine a rectangle like this, this is a temple. This is about 120 feet by 100 feet, right? Less than 100, about 80 feet right here, uh, a rectangle. The actual temple was about 500 yards long, 1,500 feet. That's about a little bit more than 10 times the length of this, of this uh, room here, and then about 325 yards wide, okay? So it's a massive edifice. It's a triangle, okay? Within that triangle, it, about half court in the triangle, there was a, in the rectangle, there's a little bit smaller area. It's the smallest area in the temple. It's called the Holy of Holies, a huge curtain that surrounded it, and the only person that could ever go in there was the designated high priest. And only one time a year he could go in, and he would go and he would offer sacrifice to the people. He would tie a bell around his ankle. In the event that that bell stopped ringing, it meant that he stopped moving, meant that he was struck dead in the presence of the holy. And if the bell stopped ringing, they knew that that priest was sinful, was not holy, was not cleansed. The music would stop playing, and they would drag him out by a rope. That's the holy of holies. Outside of that place, in a little, the next concentric circle, was an area called the Court of Israel. This is where the Jewish men could do it. As long as you were circumcised, you could go into that place. You can go to all the places, and as far as you could go was the Court of the Israelites. The third 
concentric circle. On the outer ring was a court of the women. If you're a Jewish woman, you could get as far into the temple as that place. But you couldn't go into the court of the, uh, of the Israelites. Definitely couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. The fourth and the outer ring, the outermost ring was called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is where people like you and me, all of us, except for maybe Nathan Mullins, who's actually a Messianic Jew. But the rest of us are not Jews, unless someone snuck in without us knowing. But uh, the rest of us are not Jews. So we would hang out in the court of the Gentiles. We couldn't get any closer. We couldn't, get, we couldn't see anything. It'd be from back here. This is where we'd be, just kind of hanging out on the outskirts, arm's length, actually hundreds and hundreds of yards length from the center of the action. This is where we'd be hanging out. So within that court of the Gentiles is where these people were setting up shop. Why they need to set up shop? Well, two things. If we're a pilgrim coming to the Passover, two things that we needed to do. One, we needed to pay a temple tax, and it had to be done in the currency that was required and mandated. It's kind of like you go to, like, Chuck E. Cheese. You can't use quarters. you got to use, like, the Chuck E. Cheese token with the Chuck E. Cheese on it. You had to exchange that. So there are people uh, changing money. It's kind of like at, at the airport or something like that. You go and they have the currency exchange. They were doing that in the court of the Gentiles. Second thing you had to do, if you wanted to be a worshiper, is you had to bring an animal to sacrifice. If you had money, you'd bring a sheep. If you didn't have money, you'd bring a, a bird, right? A bird, a dove, a pigeon. And so that was set up in the court of the Gentiles. The problem was, it was happening in such a way that those of us who are going to pray in the court of the Gentiles couldn't actually pray in that place. Why? You ever try to pray when there's animals all around and there's this, all this hustle and bustle? Because here's a crazy thing. When the temple was established, the original temple, 1 Kings chapter 8 talks about the dedication of the temple. They say, oh, Lord, this is a dwelling place of God and man. It says in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 41, it says, this is for the Israelites, but it's also for the Gentiles. He's saying this place of prayer is for every person who is created by God, not only for the chosen race, but it's for everybody and the only place on the planet that Gentiles like you and I could go to encounter God was in the temple in the court of the Gentiles. The problem is we couldn't even do that in those days because the religious establishment had set up their pop-up shop, their magic mall in that place where we're trying to come and seek the face of God. And because of that, see, Jesus isn't mad that we're just selling stuff at church. He doesn't care about that. He doesn't care about, uh, maybe it's like the price gouging that he cares about, but here, he makes it very clear. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer? Not just a house of prayer, but for all nations. He's saying, don't you get it? Don't you understand? All the nations are supposed to come here and to seek the face of God, but you're not allowing that to happen. Why not? Yeah, because you're money hungry, because you're corrupt and all that stuff. But because he, he makes it clear, he says, is it not written? He says, don't you know? Have you not heard the word of God that was spoken over you? The other question that we need to ask then is, but, but when did this happen? Because it says in my Bible in John chapter 2, it happens then. It says here at the end of his life it happens. The answer is it happened both times. The first time when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. And he says, y'all don't know, you've turned my father's house, house of prayer, into a den of robbers. And he cleanses the temple and then he comes back three years later. And he says the exact same thing. Why? Because in three years, nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. Comes back and it's the same song, second verse. They're doing it again. 
Nothing had changed. I said, you know, you guys are in the name of worship, in the name of religion, you're setting up these things. Why? So that people can come and worship God. You say that. You're religious, but you ain't even listened to my word. You're religious, but you ignore the word of God. And because of that, causes Jesus to flip all of these things over and say, this is not going to happen, not in my father's house. The one place on earth where the nations were supposed to come to have an encounter with a God who's passionate for their soul was being blocked to them because you have ignored the word of God from three years ago, but from hundreds of years before also. It says you've ignored the word of God. If Jesus were to come to us this Lent, we look so nice and religious, but would that be the indictment that he holds against us, but you've ignored my word? We do it one of two ways. One, by not reading it, and two, by not obeying it. If you're not reading the word of God, it's very difficult to obey the word of God, right? right? We don't know what it says. I, I was uh, texting with, uh, with somebody the other day about this, um, about this Sola conference and asked him if he signed up yet, and I had sent him a link last week. He's like, oh, I forgot to do it. I'm going to do it now. So he said, can you send the link? I said, all you need to do is scroll up one screen, and the link will be right there. Did you even read my text? <laughs> That's what I said. I wonder if uh, in some way that's what we do with the word of God. Right? We know very quick, God, what should I do? Should I talk to that person about you or not? Should I invite them to church or not? He's like, I already told you what you ought to do. See, a lot of times when we don't read the word, we, we, be, we betray our hearts. This is what our hearts are saying when we don't read the word of God. We, don't, we ignore the word of God. We think, and you can take this for what it's worth, but a lot of times we're thinking, I actually know better than God. Okay? I know better than God. I know that he said I should give my 10%. I know that he, should, uh, he told me that I should lay my life down for my wife. I know that he said I should obey my parents, but you don't understand my financial situation. You don't understand my husband or my wife. You don't understand my parents. We always think it's different. for it's, yeah, Okay, true for everybody else in the world, but it's different for me because I know better that, God, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand me. That's what we say. We think, because at the end of the day, here's our deal, guys. We say we want Jesus as a king, but Tim Keller says we just really want him as our consultant, don't we? <laughs> Not like, here's my king. I do whatever you want me to do, but here's my consultant, Jesus. I'll ask you, and if I like what you say, yeah, I think I'll do that. If I, if I like the person that you want me to, uh, to go out with and, and, and marry, then I'll go. But if I don't like them, yeah, they're a little bit too much like Jesus. Nah, they're not going to be very fun to be with. Then we don't want to listen to God then. A lot of times we don't want a king. We'd rather have Jesus as a consultant. And that's why a lot of times if we do read the word, we don't always obey the word of God. He says, is it not written? Meaning either ha you haven't heard or you haven't obeyed. Isn't it written? This is what it says. Because what happens when we don't know the truth of God's word? What do we do? What do we turn to when we don't know the truth? If we don't know the truth, y'all, you know what happens? The lies begin to sound very appealing, don't they? When we don't know the truth, our feelings begin to sound very appealing. Oh, I don't really need to go to church every Sunday. Right? Doesn't need to be every week, right? I mean, to honor the Sabbath means I should just get my rest, right? I don't. We have our own. And then someone says, hey, you don't need to go. You don't need to go. Church is wherever you are. Ah, oh, you know what? That sounds really good to me. Yeah, that sounds good. When we don't know the truth, we don't stand on the truth, the lie sounds really appealing to us. Now, I heard this this week. There's a book uh, called uh, 
War in 140 Characters by a man named David uh, Patrick Karamoff or something to that effect. It's, um, it, it's this crazy book, and it's security teams and, and, and FBI, uh, cyber, uh, cyber security, all these people from different nations, security councils, are, this is like required reading for them now. It's pretty wild. Kind of ask this question. So ask this question, in our day today, in our nation, in, in, our, uh, in our political landscape in the world, uh, there's one major superpower. Major superpower in the world is here. It's America. So if you're not American, but you want to defeat America, what do you do? You don't use weapons of normal warfare anymore. That's why, you know, there are these articles that say North Korea wants to take uh, America down. They can dismantle their nuclear weapons, right? They can disable our electric grid and everything will be shut down. It's not even about the normal warfare anymore. It's, it, it's through cybersecurity. They call it this kind of dirty warfare, right? Counterintelligence and, and all of these attacking through uh, computers and hacking and all of that stuff. And so the, the, the premise of this book, if you're a superpower, this is what you do to attack the super, if you're not a superpower, this is how you attack the dominant superpower, is you do it through, through lies. And so in the book, it, it talks about how in Russia, right, there's these farms of bots and hackers are hacking, and they know everything about us. Now, you think it's just Alexa, you think it's just Google, but there are these hackers in Russia who know what you like, when you get on Facebook, when you get on Instagram, the things that you follow, the people that you follow, what you're afraid of, and it's nailed you down to a T. And so they inject fake news into your social media stream so that it plays upon not only your fears, but your pre-existing thoughts in an echo chamber causing you to believe that this is all true And so what happens when there's someone who disagrees with you because they're hearing the same but different, the opposing kind of news that's fake, by the way? Other people are not merely wrong anymore. Other people are evil. That's why we've become so polarized. Because we idolize our ideologies now to the point that we demonize the other people's ideologies. The war of today is a war of our minds. It's a war of ideas. In fact, Churchill said that after World War II. It's not going to be a war of weapons. It's going to be a war of the mind. What do you do if you're wanting to take down the great superpower of the day? You infiltrate them with lies. And so what do you do if you're a defeated Satan? You've already been defeated. The claws have been taken out of you, and there's a superpower, the kingdom of God. What do you do? You infiltrate the minds of the people with lies because they don't know the truth, because they look religious, but they've ignored the word of God. And it's crippling a generation of believers. Because we don't read or we don't obey the word of God. And so we do whatever we want. When you don't know the truth, the lies sound awfully good to us. That's about abortion. It's about sex. It's about homosexuality. It's about morality. It's about, you name it. And we're becoming a people who have lost sight of the word of God. Jesus says, is it not written? And the first indictment against the religious establishment of the day is you look religious, but you've ignored the word of God. As we begin this season of Lent, is that you, my friends? In reading or in obedience, to the word of God, because if we don't know this, then the lies are going to sound really good to us. That's the first thing. Second thing, why did Jesus come? What was he saying? What was he saying? Why did he go to the temple instead of the palace? Why did he go there? Second thing is they looked religious, but they were not a house of prayer. 
So two things that Jesus is saying. He's, he's saying, listen, the soul of a nation is at stake. The soul of a church is on the line. And if there's one thing I want you to get, you've got to build your life upon the bedrock foundation of the word of God and of prayer. Right? There's no other way around it. Right? So Jesus comes, cleanses the temple. What was it that he was so upset about again? When we would go and we would go to try and get our temple tax coin, right? instead of charging the fair value, they would raise up the prices on these weary travelers who come from so far away. And then we come bringing our sheep, we come bringing our lamb that we think is the best that we've got. And as we bring it in, the priests who judge them and who examine them in order that they could say, okay, you can use this for sacrifice, would always fail the pilgrims as they traveled. Nah, that's not good enough. Uh, his hair is too long or his eye is crooked looking or his nose looks funny or his mouth is bent improperly or his ear is too short say no you can't have it you got to buy one of our animals from the local temple mart and they would jack up the prices other people wouldn't even try to bring their own animals because they'd be coming from hundreds of miles away and so they had to buy it at the mega maxi there and so they would go there and they would say okay this uh expecting to pay five bucks they pay fifty dollars price gouging right surge pricing on uber because it's a special day and so they would pay this exorbitant fee and all of this was happening it says not only that jesus says in verse 6 says jesus would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts and you're causing such a ruckus that there can be no prayer happening within this place you ever try to pray when people are like bringing their animals into church, like that would be kind of disturbing. Like you, you come into to worship, let's have a time of silent prayer, and then you look up and it's like a zoo. Like all the animals are up in that place. That's what they're, I remember one prayer meeting we had, this uh, morning prayer service um, several years back. So after we did the devotional and, and people were just praying on their own, you leave when you want to leave, and there was maybe a handful of people and the lights were out, the music was playing, background music, and, and uh, <laughs> some people came into that room in order to get some tables. Um, I'm not sure why they couldn't wait for the prayer meeting to be done. I'm not sure why they had to make as much noise and why they had to talk so loudly, but they were talking loudly. It wasn't library voice. It wasn't prayer meeting voice. It was like, hey, let's just act like ain't nobody in here voice, and they're talking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, take uh, 10 tables and let's bring them out here while people are praying. Like, what the nasty? That's like, who does that? <laughs> they pick up their tables and, you know, I understand if you're carrying, like, tables, sometimes they get heavy, but they're, like, banging them on the floor. And, <laughs> and I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? So I heard the voice and I knew who it was and I was getting so angry and took everything within me. I said, don't turn around and look at them because you're going to do something sinful and all these minutes you spent praying are going to go out the window. So just... Just be patient. I said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. I don't want to lose my religion here. But I was so mad because I couldn't pray because they were causing a ruckus in that place. Jesus is saying, you know what you're doing? These people have come to pray. And you look really religious, but here's the problem. Here's, here's, what, here's how I define you. You are not a house of prayer. You are a den of robbers. That's who you are. You have nothing in mind of the heart of God. You're all about your own money. You're all about your own comfort. You're all about your greed. You're all about your corruption. You don't care about them. You look religious, but you ain't a house of prayer. I wonder if Jesus, walking through the churches of our day today, would not say the same thing about us. 
You know, this is kind of difficult, isn't it? For me, this is pretty painful. Because never has so much been left to so few when it comes to prayer. Jesus is saying, I've got a week left. I've got a week left. How am I going to communicate this? I could stand up here, he says, and I could teach about prayer, or I could show them something in order to see the heart of God, something that they would not forget. And Jesus is trying to make it absolutely crystal clear to the people then and to the people now that we have to be a house of prayer if you want for the survival of a, of a church. Because, man, there's a lot of good things that we can do without praying but if you want a church to be around for generation after generation, we got to build a house of prayer. And I, I, I wasn't going to talk about this, but I, I heard this message from, uh, at, at a conference this week from Francis Chan. I, and I, I, I kind of prefaced it by saying we have some people in our church who love to surf. They love to surf, and, and one of our brothers, Kenneth, loves surfing, and he loves it so much that he says that's the one thing he can do in order to, to feel and experience God's presence more than anything else, just getting out under the sun in nature, catching a wave, and he says, I, I experienced Jesus in that place. And people have told him, don't do it. You can get a concussion. There's sharks out there. Uh, you're going to get burned. It's too cold or whatever, whatever. And he says, you know what, but that's, where, that's, that's my spot. We have some other folks who, um, I, I didn't know you could do this, but they rented out two hours of Typhoon Lagoon at Disney Park, right? Do you know that you could do this before they open? They rented out those two hours, and there's a wave pool. And these cats would go, and they would surf on the wave pool at Typhoon Lagoon. they pay, like, hundreds of dollars, and they would, they would jump on this place. And they would get off. They'd, oh, it was glorious. And they'd get back on it again, and they'd do it again, and they would take turns, and it's awesome. And I think there's something beautiful about that. But I think if you ask the purists, you ask the people who surf, they would say, you know what, but there's nothing, there's nothing authentic about that. There's nothing, there's nothing like being out there on Cocoa Beach or New Smyrna Beach and, and actually catching one and seeing that, the unpredictability and then seeing it coming and then catching it and riding it all the way over. There's nothing like that in the world. There's no experience like that in the world. And what Francis says is a lot of times this is what we do. We're creating man-made waves and we're thinking, dang, this is the work of God. Because we can create waves within our church. As long as I play this song that goes along with this sermon, people are going to be moved. We can create our own ways, and then we can say at the end of it all, man, God really moved in this place. We start this wave that begins at 1030 in the morning. It kind of, we, we, we start low, we rise higher, then eventually we catch fire at the end, and then we go out on a high note because we play the right kind of songs. Just play that bridge over and over and over and over and get that hook, and then we're going to be, we know how to create these waves, and then at the end we're like, dang, God really moved. But aren't there times where you wish for more than a man-made wave of God within the church. More than a predictable, I know how it's going to go. But we got out of there and we saw God move. Said that's not going to happen by simply looking religious. It happens when we become a house of prayer. And in our day and age, you understand this. I, I think about the houses that we're building across the landscape of Christianity today. And I don't see many houses of prayer. I might see like little doll houses built on my brick of minute-by-minute minute prayer. But I think about our parent generation. Our parent generation who, and, 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 and if you're not Asian-American, that's cool. But Asian-Americans, or Korean-Americans especially, like to wake up at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, zero dark 30 and go to their churches to pray because the only time they could pray and they said we don't have a lot we could give our kids but the one thing we can give them is we can deposit into a house of prayer so that when they grow up they can withdraw from that at any time that they want and they've been building and some of us let's be honest are only here because our parents have been building houses of prayer 
Morning after morning, hour after hour, that's my soul was saved because of the prayers of people that went before me. I'm under no illusion that I did anything good to be where I am. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the reason I stand in the presence of God is because of the grace of God that was given to me because people were building brick by brick houses of prayer for me to go into when the storms of life came into my life. And I wonder what we're building for the generations to come. When your kids grow up, what kind of a house are they going to live in? When the next generation comes in the church, what kind of a house are they going to live in? Are they even going to be able to fit into a house built on your prayers? Because never has there been so much that's been left to so few. My favorite preacher, Leonard Ravenhill, says this. He said, there are so many organizers, but so few agonizers. Many who are interfering, but few who are interceding. Yeah, we have some who pay, but not many who pray. We're high on fashion, but low on passion. Sinning people will stop praying, but praying people will stop sinning. When a church member is not praying, they're straying. When a church leader is not praying, he's playing. This is a church. We get more upset that we're we're not air conditioned than we are about the fact that we're not prayer conditioned. You want to know, this is what they used to say, you, know how, you want to know how popular uh, a church is? You look at their Sunday morning attendance. You want to see how popular a preacher is? You go to their Sunday night service, which churches don't really have that anymore. So you look at their podcast. You look at how many people viewed their sermons. You know how popular Jesus is? You go to their prayer meetings. How popular is Jesus to us? We creating man-made waves, or do we really believe that there's more to come? That's not going to happen built on the backs of the hard work and labor of many of us. It's going to be built falling on our knees in prayer, building brick by brick by brick a house of prayer. doesn't matter how small your house is now. We begin now. We can build a house of prayer. And indeed, tomorrow can be better than today. And I believe that with all of my heart. Do you guys believe this one weeping prophet can change a nation still one or two people get together they say we're going to fight for the glory of God and the battlefield is not going to be out there in the political realms it's, not, it's going to be in the spiritual realms I'm going to fight with the weapons of prayer and the word of God if that's what it's going to take that's what it's about and this is this has kind of been haunting me this week as I, I think about this. We had a lot going on this week, a lot of things, a lot of different meetings, a lot of different gatherings. We lost an hour of sleep last night, and I was praying about this message last night, and I actually yesterday I nixed, it was supposed to be a, a three-thought therm, sermon, but I, I cut it into two and said, I, there's just too much to say. And as I was wrestling with this, I, I got to about 11 o'clock last night, and I was like, man, struggling, struggling with this stuff. And so I, I, I was just, I was tired. I, I laid in my bed and I said, God, I need to, yeah, I need to, I need to pray. I need to fight. I didn't want to. These words of this song from ancient days came to my mind. It says, my flesh is tired of seeking God, but on my knees I'll stay. I want to be a pleasing child until that final day. It's wrestling with God, God, I want to go to bed, but I can't. I want to pray just a little bit more for the sake of my soul, just a little bit more for the sake of my people tomorrow morning. God, I want to fight a little bit more. Because I don't want to look religious and not build a house of prayer in my own life. I want to build a house of prayer so that just as my parents did for me, that my kids would see 
that they would say, you know what, when we have a problem, Daddy taught us how to pray. When we have something good happens, Daddy said the first thing we need to do is pray. When I'm sick, Daddy said the first thing we need to do is pray for God to heal us. I want my kids to see that so they can build a house of prayer. We're leading our people to either build a shanty of prayer or to build a house of prayer. That we'd be the kind of people that build a house of prayer so that people would come and they would see. They would come into this house and they would say, man, there's things that are happening in this place that can't be explained. I don't understand it. Their praise team is not that good. Their preacher is not even that good. I don't know what's going on in that place, but God is doing something within their midst. I want that to be our church. That people really say, yeah, great things you have done, but there is more to come. We would long for that and we'd seek that. Now, some people get angry at a message like this. You know who got angry? Jesus got angry. But you know who got angry at him for saying that was his chief priest and the ruler. Listen to, what, listen to what it says in verse 18. It says the chief priest and the teacher of the law heard this and they began to repent. Uh-uh, it doesn't say that. They heard this, began looking for a way to kill him. Hey, we either obey him or <laughs> we got to get rid of him somehow. How desperately does Jesus want us to become a house of prayer. He could have done it anyway. Hey, guys, let's have a prayer meeting. Remember this, remember this. Then do that. He does it in such a way that we get the point, but it accelerates the train that leads to the cross. Begin looking for a way to kill him. This is how much Jesus wants you to be intimate with your Father in heaven how much he wants you to be near to the heart of his father. He said, I would even die in order that you would not just hang out on the court of the Gentiles, that you would ascend past the court of the women, past the court of the men, and you would get into the Holy of Holies and that you could be intimate with God. Because you see, it didn't take overturning tables. That won't change the heart of a man or a woman. Only Jesus can, and it took him going to the cross, and he was crucified. His intimacy with God was shut down. His prayer life was shut out in order that ours could be started. So I've paid the price for you, the ultimate price. I've done that, but there's more to come. Would you embrace that? Would you see that? And let's not just be religious. Let's build our lives on the word of God. Let's build a house of prayer. Let's let him be our king. Let's pray together. Can we be uh, practical and honest this morning? How will you live out this word that you've heard today? Maybe for some of you, if you don't pray, your prayer can be, Lord, I want to pray just two minutes a day. I just want to pray two minutes a day, slowly to build a house of prayer. If you don't read the word of God, maybe your prayer today can be, Lord, here it is every day. I just want to read one chapter of the Bible. I'm going to read it three times and let it get into my soul. Maybe you're praying inconsistently. But your prayer can be, Lord, I want to pray consistently that every day I can lay a brick, a new brick every day, a new brick every day so that I can see you. The reason we don't see God is because we don't ask him and invite him into our work. You want to do much for God, you got to spend much with God. 
there's no limits to what God can do through your life, and there's no limits to how close and intimate you can be with God. The limiting factor is not God and his willingness. He wants it. He gave his son to have it. We are the limiting agent. Let's fight for more of Christ. Let's surrender to him. Let's pray. Make a prayer of surrender, of commitment. Just a minute or two. Lord, here I am. I give you my heart. I give you my, my time in the word. I give you my prayer life. Lord, resurrect my life in prayer. Help me. Yeah, let's pray like that for a minute. And we'll, uh, I'll, I'll pray for us and we'll continue worship. Father in heaven, there's a big difference between simply being religious and being Christ-like. There's a difference between being religious and being spirit-filled. difference between being religious and being godly. Father, help us to shed the facade of anything that would present a false image of who we are so that from the inside out that you would raise in us people of your word, a people of truth, and a people of prayer. Lord, let it be said of us that for all of our faults and all of our failures and all of our flaws and all of our weaknesses, that we are a house of prayer. Let that be our story. Let that be our testimony. House of prayer as a church is not an entity. House of prayer as a church is built upon individuals who commit themselves to be a house of prayer. May we do that. May we not push the responsibility to someone else, but to know that we are the body of Christ, and each of us is a part of it. When each of us prays, each of us affects the others in order that together our body, the church, your church, might grow as a house of prayer. To help us, whether it be Wednesday night, whether it be Saturday morning, whether it be in our own times, Lord, teach us to pray and teach us to love your word, to live your word, Thank you so much. We love you, Jesus, because you've loved us first. We pray this all in Jesus' name.